Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Kellen, many, many episodes ago, we did an episode highlighting historical collapse. We talked about reasons that societies have collapsed in the past. You kind of ran that episode, and you did a great job. Today's episode, we wanted to touch on collapse that's happening today, sort of the modern collapses that are happening. And a lot of people don't maybe realize or perhaps pay attention, but there are collapses happening locally all around the world, and they're accelerating. This is going to be a two-part series. There's enough countries that we wanted to cover and talk about. We're going to take three countries today and highlight what's happening in those countries, why it's happening, what conditions are like. And then next week, we'll do the same thing. We'll do it for a few different countries. And it'll be interesting to see because while many of these countries are following the same paths and in some cases for the same reasons, some are collapsing for completely different reasons. So the three countries that we're going to highlight today are Sri Lanka, Venezuela, and Lebanon. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out there that when you first introduced me to the collapse, like episode one, you shared a couple of different definitions. And on one hand, you know, it can be defined that collapse is a decrease in the population by a certain percentage, like by 90%. That's not what we're talking about here. Although these different countries that we're going to be covering... There have, in some cases, been a lot of deaths. It's more about a breakdown in structures, in organization, in order, a significant decline in the quality of life and the type of lifestyle that people have the opportunity to live. 
And it's interesting because often when we're talking about collapse in general, we're talking about worldwide. We're talking about where we're headed as a global civilization. And yet when you talk about collapse happening regionally, in some aspects it's very similar, in some it's a little bit different. For example, if a country, a nation collapses, usually it's not that a majority of the population dies, but it might be that millions of people flee to neighboring countries. Whereas when we talk about the eventual outcome that we've been describing globally, there's not anywhere to flee to. And so I think it's worth keeping some of those things in mind as we step through these examples. Yeah, that's an incredibly important distinction to make. We are not claiming that Sri Lanka has decreased in population by 80%. Like you said, we are more pinpointing the failures of the systems there, how those systems themselves are collapsing, and how it's affecting the lives of the people. On a local scale, when things collapse, like you said, Kellen, people leave, perhaps instead of dying. And there are also other countries or organizations that can help those countries get by, at least to some degree. This isn't Star Trek where, when as a globe, as an entire system, we collapse, that someone will step in and, and save us from outside of this world, right? This is it. This is all we got. And if as a global society, we falter, there is no one to help us. And so as we talk about each of these regions, we'll, we'll sort of mention the ways in which they are being given aid or helped out. But I think that's a really great point you've made and, and a really important distinction. Yeah. And another thing to call out is that collapse in some ways can be kind of a misnomer. And we've mentioned this before, but when you say collapse, it sounds like things are all stable and then it all suddenly falls apart. And if we're talking on a global scale, you know, it might be Sri Lanka one year and Venezuela the next, and maybe Ukraine today and Ecuador tomorrow, and nations will be experiencing more and more hardship, while at the same time, there may be other nations that are getting by just fine. And so it'll take turns. And yes, on a global scale, things will decline on average. But these kind of examples that we'll be mentioning will likely happen more frequently in the future and to a greater level of severity. And one last point that I'll mention, or I should say it's more of a request that I make, that as you listen to these stories of what's happening in these nations, that you try and put yourself in the shoes of the people who live there. It's so easy for us to view these things as happening on the other side of the world happening to someone else. You know, I don't see it every day on the news. I haven't been affected by it. And it's, and it's really easy to not feel how real it is for so many people. And I don't say this so that you feel some sort of empathy or sympathy necessarily, but more just so that you can understand how real it is, how real it is for others. And it does paint a good picture for what the future could be like for you. In the U.S., we are very sheltered. We're very secure in a lot of ways in that we have the global reserve currency, the world reserve currency. And this is something we'll talk about a little bit in this episode. But in many ways, the U.S. is susceptible to the same things happening here as we're seeing in, in these other places. All right. So let's uh, jump in and start with Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka is a nation of 22 million people. You may remember that we had Desh Amila on the podcast. He did a great interview with us about his experience living in Sri Lanka during the Civil War, 
And so one thing to keep in mind is that Sri Lanka has been in a civil war for a long time, and that war ended just in 2008, so it wasn't that long ago. And so this is a country that has, for decades and decades, had certain amounts of turmoil and, and issues. And my guess is that this is going to be a reoccurring theme that we'll see in many of these countries that we discuss. One of the big things to keep in mind with Sri Lanka, this was a political crisis which led to an economic crisis which is now just leading to an overall crisis of all systems. There's a family in Sri Lanka called the Rajapaksa family. They have been in power for quite some time, since 2005. And there are a lot of claims about this family regarding corruption, regarding nepotism, regarding just mismanagement. They haven't been great at running the country. So Mahinda Rajapaksa was president from 2005 to 2015. He gave multiple family members positions in the government, in 2015, he was shortly replaced by an opposition candidate, but then in 2019, his brother Godabaya Rajapaksa came to power and he gave even more family members government positions. Literally, like, his dad became the prime minister, he was giving sons, nephews, daughters-in-laws, all these different positions within the government. Kind of reminds me of a certain family at the top of the U.S. political food chain here recently. Now, this issue accelerated back when Mahinda was president starting in 2005. He spent a ton of money on increasing national projects. So there was all sorts of like luxurious towers that he built. There were some unnecessary things that they put hundreds of millions of dollars into, and some of them were duds. They never got used or finished. A huge increase in expenses. Then when Godabaya became president, he ended up lowering tax rates dramatically. That was one of his campaign promises. It was a bit of a populist move to do, but what it did was it cut government revenue. So you had all this increase in spending, you had an increase in debt, and a decrease now in revenue due to the cut in taxes. One big issue that Sri Lanka faced is that they were a net importer. So a lot of countries are. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it grew out of control. They started to incur too much foreign debt, and what this meant was that eventually they had way more U.S. dollars leaving the economy than they had entering the economy. Because the U.S. dollars, the world reserve currency, the number of U.S. dollars that a country has is important. They can't just spend Sri Lankan rupees because not every government or every other nation wants to do business in rupees. So over time, as the amount of U.S. dollars shrank from their reserves, it became harder and harder for them to do business, and to keep paying their debts. We'll get back to that part in just a minute. But there were a few more things here that the government did to, to cause some problems. So one, they banned chemical fertilizers to farmers, 100%. They said any farmer in Sri Lanka, you can no longer purchase chemicals on your farms. You have to do everything organically. They claimed that they wanted to be the first nation to be 100% organic, but many people think they just couldn't afford the fertilizers at that point. But what that did, to no one's surprise, is it decreased yield dramatically. We did the entire episode on agriculture and how important fertilizers are and how we rely on chemical fertilizers. It's an inconvenient truth, but it is the truth, that when you cut the use of those fertilizers, the yield that you're going to have is going to decrease dramatically. And it says here, according to one article, that this led to pretty much immediately half uh, yields as they were getting before. Which, when we talk about limited resources and phosphorus and petroleum products, you know, globally, we rely on chemical fertilizers in order to have the kind of 
sustained amount of food that we do right now. And so seeing what happens to a country that has their crop yield drop by 50%, in my mind, is kind of an analogy for what we would expect worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that will likely happen in other nations, developing nations first, but that will eventually hit the West and, and first, first world countries. And this is especially devastating for a net importer like Sri Lanka, because now for the first time ever, they're having to add to those imports, things like rice, stuff that they're normally able to grow self-sufficiently. They're now having to get from other nations, which is furthering the issue they're having with their debt and with the lack of U.S. dollar. So this started to increase food prices dramatically. Then, of course, you have the pandemic a huge piece, 22% of Sri Lanka's GDP in 2019 was from tourism. And so you have this pandemic, tourism comes to a halt, and that really affected them. In 2019, they were ranked as the best place to visit by Lonely Planet. The best place on earth. <laughs> you know, this is talking about wonderful, beautiful beaches, a great tourist environment, and that all came crashing down. This also meant that remittances dropped dramatically. Remittances are when someone lives in a nation, but they go work somewhere foreign and then send home money to the nation. And in this case, those remittances were in U.S. dollars. So this was a really important income of U.S. dollars into the country. But because, again, of the pandemic, those remittances stopped. And also because there was, in 2020, an increase in Islamic State terrorist attacks. There were some really big attacks and this started to hinder people's abilities to leave the country and their desires to leave the country and send money home. Then you add on top of that the war in Ukraine and the amount of increase in food prices because of that, the decrease in the ability for access to fertilizers, and you have this perfect storm of issues. Each one by themselves, each one of these issues could have caused serious problems, but all of them happening at the same time is a disaster for developing countries. Sri Lanka's U.S. dollar reserves went from nearly $8 billion in 2019 down to $1.6 billion in 2021. So in just two years, they spent like four-fifths of their total U.S. dollar reserves. Another factor in all this is that they had been overvaluing their own currency. This is kind of a complicated thing I'm not going to go too far into. But basically, over time, the government had increased domestically what they said the rupee was worth, but it wasn't necessarily what it was actually worth in the foreign markets. So that was unsustainable. And as people began to realize that the rupee was not worth necessarily what the government was saying it was worth, that stopped remittances pretty much altogether. People stopped putting money into the banks and that just contributed to the overall economic issues. So in the end, it all culminated with the government having a $7 billion debt payment that they could not make and they defaulted on it. The total foreign debt that they owe right now is $51 billion and they are not paying any of that. And because of all that, there is now no money left to pay to import essential goods. They don't have U.S. dollars to be able to trade with other countries to have the imports of gas that they need, of petrol, of food, of medicine, all of these things that are pretty critical to keeping a society running. One video that I watched basically summed up Sri Lanka's problems in three different things. So one is the government can't import supplies fast enough because they don't have U.S. dollars. Two, extremely high inflation has affected the rupees that are in the system. So people's savings are worth less now than they were before, which is a big deal for a developing nation. People are working really hard. Most of them have less money to save and put away. 
and the little bit that they've been able to put away is now worth much less. And then that causes panic and hoarding, which is just creating a feedback loop of further panic, further inflation, a higher need for those supplies, because when someone hoards, that means someone else doesn't get it, which ended up increasing prices further. And it brings me back to what we've talked about before, which is that all factors of collapse tend to manifest themselves as economic challenges. And it ends up being that positive feedback loop when there are economic challenges. You know, that's that's really what causes a nation to collapse is when its financial system collapses. So we recently had our episode on inflation. And as you describe the situation there, especially in a developing nation like Sri Lanka, it makes sense that it would be absolutely devastating. So everything that we've kind of set up to this point in regards to Sri Lanka just kind of shows the backstory, but it's a totally different thing to actually think about and see what the average day is like for a person there now. What effects is this actually having on people there? There was one video on YouTube that I liked. We'll link to this in the description. It does a great job of showing how people are being affected. And there was one comment in particular on the YouTube video. It said, Sri Lankan here, like explained, I cannot explain or comprehend how we went from living a middle-class life of being able to eat out fairly regularly, being able to buy clothes, having meat every other day, having milk, and being able to travel anywhere, being able to afford things that we wanted, to not being able to do or afford any of that. We were barely able to buy enough rice and pay class fees this month. We couldn't afford to buy milk powder or gas, and we couldn't even buy eggs or fish to feed even our pets. We live in the countryside, so there's enough jackfruit, yam, sweet potatoes in our backyard, and we can use wood instead of gas. Looking at these numbers is easy, but living this life is hell. Thank you for covering this story. And I think it is so interesting to hear about a place where, relatively speaking, they were doing well. There was a decent middle class. People were able to enjoy some luxuries and do things that they wanted to every day. And now the situation is this, and I'm just going to read off a few of the consequences that people are facing. So food staples have quadrupled in price. Carrots, cauliflower, and other basic vegetables are now considered luxuries. Inflation has been 30% plus. There are so many medicines that are unavailable. Schools are now shut down. Kids are not going to school. They couldn't get paper or ink, and now they don't have a way to get to school because people are waiting multiple days in lines for fuel and food. In this video I just mentioned, they talked about how people were literally waiting in lines for three to five days at gas stations to get fuel. And if that wasn't bad enough, just this week, they announced that fuel can now only be used for essential services. Hospital, trains, buses, things like that. The public does not have access to get gas anymore. In one article, there was an interview with a man who had quit his job in the tourism industry in 2020 to become a tuk-tuk driver. It's those little taxis that they drive around. They're like motorcycle taxis. And now he's lost his job with that because he can no longer get fuel. And over the last few months to get fuel, he's been waiting days at a time in line, sleeping in his tuk-tuk. The government has announced that there's only enough fuel for those essential services for the next two weeks. And only 10 days left of fuel for the garment sector, which is Sri Lanka's largest GDP contributor. The garment sector maintains jobs for 3 million workers. So that's like between 10 and 15% of all people in Sri Lanka work in the garment sector, which has 10 days left of fuel. 
So this is a situation that is ongoing. It's new. All of this really just started in March as far as when things escalated. And it went bad really quite fast. I'm just going to read to end this portion a couple things from the timeline. So on April 1st, a state of emergency was declared. By April 2nd, just the next day, they were deploying troops. There was a curfew. There had been some really big protests, threats on the prime minister's home. And by April 10th, so just a week and a half later, there was already medicine shortages. And the default on the debt happened on April 12th. A new government was installed on the 18th. People started dying on the 19th. Shoot to kill orders happened by the government to the police, telling them they could shoot to kill anyone who was looting or involved in any sort of violent protest. So, I mean, as far as when we talk about collapse happening fast, yes, there was a very slow buildup from all the corruption, from all of the mismanagement happening on the back end. But as far as the social decay that came next, that all happened in a frighteningly fast time frame. Man, what a heartbreaking thing to hear about. You know, sometimes I feel like I got challenges in life. <laughs> but here we are, Corey, in a reasonably comfortable room, you know, plugged into a computer, talking about these things from a distance. And yet, like you mentioned, this is ongoing. This is a current situation. And at this very moment, there are people that can't get the fuel or the food that they need. They're waiting in line they're trying to figure out how they're going to help their families survive. And at least from what you've described so far, it sounds like there's not really an end in sight. Yeah, there really isn't. You know, we talked at the beginning of the podcast about how locally there are a lot of things that can maybe be done as far as receiving assistance and bailouts and, and these types of things. And that's what Sri Lanka is trying to accomplish. So countries like China and India have offered loans but not enough, not near enough. And many countries, China and India included, don't want to offer more loans in rupees, and especially now don't want to offer loans when they're not being paid back. So any sort of financial support is dwindling. And when this happens in, in developing countries, they often look towards the IMF to sort of bail them out and give them help. But that is something that, number one, takes a long time to achieve, it's not like an overnight thing where the IMF will just send a bunch of money their way. And there are a lot of obstacles to overcome. The IMF requires that any country that it helps have a stable government that can continue to improve once that money is given. There can't be any corruption. There can't be any mismanagement. They want to know that once they offer you that money or give you that help and set up the plan moving forward, that it's going to be managed appropriately with a stable government regime. And things are not getting better politically in Sri Lanka. So Godabaya installed a new prime minister now. His dad is no longer the prime minister. He's trying to create a government with members from political opposition parties. But they are refusing to join until Godabaya and the rest of the Rajapaksas are out of office. And of course, they don't want to leave. For many countries... Help from the IMF never comes. And we'll talk about that here in a bit in regards to Lebanon, who has been in crisis for years and has still not received help from the IMF for similar reasons. At this point, it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog -dog situation. Countries everywhere in the world are looking out for themselves. Extending aid to Sri Lanka would require a sacrifice. In many ways, it would require aid that would not be repaid. And you know that is in a time when many countries are struggling themselves. And this is really, I think, the scariest piece to all of this 
And it's that the UN worries they have come out and said that a dozen or more developing countries could follow suit behind Sri Lanka. Some including the Maldives, Ethiopia, Senegal, Pakistan, and more. And default on their debt. They're looking at the perfect storm I mentioned earlier of the Ukraine war, of the pandemic, of increasing food prices and supply chain issues. And they're saying all of these countries are in the same basic boat that Sri Lanka was in. They may already be on edge because of their own corruptions or economic mismanagement. And now with all these global issues, it's taking them over the edge. So a lot of countries right now are reacting to this war in Ukraine. You know, Ukraine has stopped exporting things like wheat and fertilizer. And so countries are saying, we need to stop exporting. We need to just keep all our goods for ourselves. And that is really impacting these developing nations who need that import help. They're not able to create or, or produce for themselves. And all the while, their currencies are inflating and other countries are not wanting to do the business with them. One quote to just end this little subsection on Sri Lanka that I thought was interesting was this. It said, what for the rich world will be an inconvenience, high gas prices, inefficient supply chains, and possibly even recession, will for the developing world mean the undoing of decades worth of progress in healthcare, education, and general prosperity. So us here in the United States, and by us, I mean Kellen and I, and any of our listeners who are in the U.S., we are experiencing those inconveniences, right? We've got higher gas prices. Food prices are increasing. We do have inflation. But in reality, at least right now, other countries want the U.S. dollar. We don't have this big fear of not being able to trade. Everybody wants to do business with us. Now, of course, there's all these talks and fears about the U.S. dollar losing its status as the world reserve currency. But at least for right now, that's not an immediate likelihood. If it does ever happen, then yes, the U.S. will be in a lot of trouble. But the biggest fear is for those nations who are currently developing, who rely on doing business with other nations in order to feed their people. And so we will see in the months and years to come if more of these nations start to take the same path that Sri Lanka has. Well, it'll be interesting here to kind of compare and contrast the situation in Sri Lanka to the situation in Venezuela. And as I introduce some things about Venezuela and what has taken place there, I do want to kind of confess that, you know, I am sometimes guilty of viewing tragedies taking place in other parts of the world as being so far removed. They are so different and I don't really let it sink in. You know, for example, it seems like in some parts of the Middle East, there's just always conflict. Life is always crazy. People are always in poverty. And some of the conflict and the reasons behind it, like it, it just seems so foreign, especially when I see people that are dressed so differently. Their buildings and roads look different. But anyways, I look at Venezuela and as I watch several of these videos of the events in Venezuela, I'm seeing paved roads and big commercial buildings and most people are in jeans and t-shirts, baseball caps. And in so many respects, it looks to me just like the U.S. And so something about that kind of brought it home for me a little bit more. It's easy to look at somebody with cancer and think like, well, I'm healthy. I'm not really worried about cancer. That's not going to happen to me. Or look at somebody who's going through a divorce and say like, well, I'm in a good marriage. Like, I'll never go through that. But to see those similarities in Venezuela 
and then to see what has taken place there, it is a little bit unsettling. And maybe that's because, you know, at one point in 1970, Venezuela was the richest country in Latin America. And in terms of how it was doing economically and and how rich of a country it was, it was ahead of like Greece and Israel and Spain. It was a country that was doing very well had a democratic government. A lot of people don't recognize this, but Venezuela is the number one country in the world in oil reserves. It's even ahead of like Saudi Arabia. Usually you would think of Saudi Arabia as being the place with the most oil. And when I say oil reserves, one definition for that, oil reserves are the amount of crude oil a country or a region has that can be reasonably extracted. And so really Venezuela is just sitting on this gold mine oil. So anyways, what I mentioned there about Venezuela being one of the richest countries in Latin America and had this great setup in their government, having all these great natural resources, compare that to what took place just in this last decade. So they have experienced extreme hyperinflation. In fact, inflation rates became the highest in the world in 2014 and continued to increase In 2018, inflation exceeded 1 million percent. There has been escalated starvation and disease and crime and mortality rates. In fact, Venezuela led the world in murder rates in 2018. There has been massive emigration from the country. 5.4 million people by 2021, which is almost 20% of Venezuelans, had left the country. The amount of political corruption and the shortages in food and medicine, the lack of health care, the unemployment. Like honestly, looking at Venezuela in just this last decade, it feels like it's a total dumpster fire. And so that's why this situation is particularly alarming to me is because in many ways, Venezuela was like an enviable country. The U.S., had several political leaders that were pointing to Venezuela and saying, we should do socialism because look at how well it's working out for Venezuela. And then for it to reach a point that it has is such an extreme turnaround. So you might think, well, how did it possibly get that way? So one important factor here is that revenue from petroleum exports accounts for more than 50% of the country's GDP. Wow. So in some regards, that's great for them, right? Because they have the largest oil reserves in the world. But what that means is, you know, when the price of oil goes up, they get a lot of money in Venezuela. And when it dips, that impacts them very strongly. So Hugo Chavez, he was in power for a little more than a decade. And yet the oil price per barrel went from $19 to $97 during his reign, during his presidency. That gives some perspective on just how much prosperity, how much money came flooding into Venezuela. And Hugo Chavez basically rigged the economy in a way that benefited the poor, but also benefited himself. He started buying all these programs. So the surging oil prices led to a boost in food subsidies and education and healthcare Poverty rates decreased by more than half. And all of that sounds great, but he wasn't worried about setting up something that was sustainable. He was worried about making the people happy so he would get reelected. 
But he, he was a very popular leader for that reason. People loved Hugo Chavez. But by the way, while there was so much prosperity and they were giving out all this free money, all these social programs that were making the people really happy, Hugo Chavez was doing some things to consolidate power, rewriting the constitution. He got rid of term limits. He took control of different government branches. Anyways, in 2013, he died. In 2014, Nicolas Maduro becomes the president of Venezuela. Oil prices fell, and like I mentioned, all those programs that had been set up that the government was paying for would be impossible to sustain if oil prices fell. So you see this big dip in oil prices, and then some really extreme corruption and and some really sketchy decisions take place. Maduro rigged it so the official government exchange rate of Bolivar's for the U.S. dollar was 10 to 1. But most Venezuelans were getting their dollars on the black market for a rate of 12,163 to 1. So because of Maduro proclaiming what the official exchange rate was, his closest friends and associates got to receive that kind of a rate. Everyone else in the country was getting this terrible exchange rate. Then the military got control of the food market and they would import it at that official government rate and then they would sell food on the black market at that black market rate, making massive profits. Because the military was making such huge profits, they had Maduro's back. They wanted him to stay in power. All the while, hyperinflation is setting in and each year getting more and more extreme. You get an election that is followed by kind of a pseudo-election where Maduro declares that he's the victor. The result is a bunch of protests and violence. There were already plenty of protests taking place. And then recently, kind of like what you talked about, Corey, in Sri Lanka, there were some big impacts from the pandemic. And the result is that there is a huge humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. You know, I just think of that number that you said earlier that 20% of people have left Venezuela. That is shocking. I mean, to consider the type of humanitarian crisis that would have to be in place there for for a fifth of all people to leave. That's amazing. Yeah. And one thing that's sad is that as the rest of the world sees all the awful corruption taking place, there's this feeling of, you know, we've, we've got to do something about this. And so sanctions get put in place. I think of it as a similar situation to what we're seeing in Russia, where Putin and his government are making these terrible decisions. The world's trying to fight back with these economic sanctions. And in many cases, who that's really hurting is the people, you know, who if it it was their choice, they wouldn't be doing any of the things that Putin is choosing to do. So not to dive too deep into all of the reactions and the sanctions and the things that have taken place over the years with Venezuela, but you know, it's hard to look at what has happened and see it as anything other than a state of collapse. In a country like Venezuela, it's even more delicate of a situation because so many countries want to get their hands on Venezuela's resources, right? In a world with dwindling oil supply, to have Venezuela, which is this sort of corruption-torn country, there's, there's a lot of eyes on that pool of resources. And I haven't personally looked much into this, but I know I've heard a lot of people suggest that the U.S. has had involvement in coup operations and things that have happened in Venezuela. 
you know, there's always talk about the CIA and their involvement, especially in South America, because it has happened many times before. Meanwhile, you have other OPEC nations and Middle Eastern countries, and, and there's just so many hands in this one country's pot. And I think without that level of corruption and involvement from foreign powers and all of these different things, Venezuela would likely be a very different country today. And as you said, of course, the saddest part of this is that it's the citizens, it's the people that are affected, while in large part, the government gets away with its corruptions and the foreign powers that are meddling get away with it unscathed as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because depending on where you look, if you try to search for who is the president of Venezuela, you might get two different answers. You know, the 2019 election in Venezuela, I'm doing air quotes here, is disputed. And you've got another individual who's claiming that they are the acting president, though they don't really have any power. All the while, Maduro has, you know, been very clear about wanting to maintain his power. And so it's a really dicey situation. But when you describe the heavy level of interest that so many nations have in Venezuela's resources, an unstable government, in whatever sense of the word you want to use for that, can be a great opportunity for kind of a stealthy takeover uh, or finding a way to get a foot in the door to get a hold of those resources. I think a lot of people who haven't done much research, and I haven't done a lot, into U.S. CIA involvement in foreign affairs might look at it as sort of a conspiracy theory when you talk about it, because there's a lot that's not commonly known. It's not talked about with solid proof. I would encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about CIA involvement in foreign affairs to read a book called All the Shah's Men. This is an audiobook I listened to a couple years back, and it was fascinating. It's about a coup instigated by the U.S. and the U.K. in Iran, and it really helps to understand the relationship that Iran has with the U.S. and the West. And it sort of changed my paradigm in thinking about foreign relations, geopolitical tensions, and sort of the covert operations that happen. This is just one we know about, but there are likely many that we've never heard of. So I think at this point, as we're sort of nearing the end of the episode, we do want to take some time and talk about Lebanon. I think we'll keep it somewhat brief because we've spent so much time on Sri Lanka and Venezuela. But I do think it's still important to go through some of the main factors that have caused Lebanon to end up where they are. You've probably seen, even if you're not paying super close attention to this, you've likely seen on the news regarding the big explosion that happened there and how that exacerbated problems that they were currently having. Um, but really, Lebanon's issues go so much deeper and started so much earlier than that port explosion in 2020. Yeah, I know that we, as we look at these different nations, recognize there are so many different factors. You can't just point to one cause and say, this one thing is what caused the collapse of that nation. But it is interesting that each of these countries that we're talking about today, Sri Lanka, Venezuela, Lebanon, it really is a, a collapse of the economy. And obviously there's so much there. There's corruption and poor financial choices. There's resulting social conflict. But at least everything that I studied on Lebanon, I frankly was shocked at the financial decisions that were made by those in power, especially regarding their management of debt. And when you combine that with the other factors that were at play, it was kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of parallels between Lebanon and the other countries that we've talked about. And many countries that haven't collapsed 
but that should probably take notes from these countries that have. And that's specifically in the mismanagement of finances and more specifically, like you said, in unrealistically high levels of debt. And hopefully on a personal level, <laughs> we're also taking note of this and understanding the dangers of debt, right? We haven't done an episode on debt and we really need to. There are great ways that debt can be leveraged, but when over leveraged or when used inappropriately or under the unfortunate circumstances that can arise, debt can cause serious issues. And that's what's sort of triggering a lot of these issues worldwide right now is the fact that some countries have too much debt, then you get a pandemic and a war and all these issues coming together and it's just too much for a country to handle. Well, with that in mind, there's a Reuters article that highlights some of the events leading up to the big breakdown in Lebanon. So, you know, remittances, which you made a point of with Sri Lanka, Corey, for Lebanon started slowing down in 2011. Some of that was a result of issues going on in the Middle East with Syria in particular. You start getting countries kind of turning away because of the rising influence of Hezbollah. You get the, the budget deficit skyrocketing. 2016 banks start giving these incredible interest rates for new deposits of dollars. And, and you think, well, how in the world could they offer such high interest rates where that wasn't necessarily happening in other places in the world? One term for it that's called out here is financial engineering. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to put it. But the point is they were doing some things there that were not sustainable particularly on a, on a financial and economic level, you know, what central banks were doing was going to come to an end sooner or later. And then you get some of the things that took place in 2018, 2019. Yeah, one of those that I thought was interesting, in October of 2019, there were mass protests that started, which were triggered by the government placing a tax on calls that were made through messaging platforms like WhatsApp. And this caused a huge Outrage. This was basically the straw that broke the camel's back from all of these things that you had mentioned happening beforehand. Now, because of these huge protests, the government removed that law. It never really got put into effect, but the protests persisted. People kept demanding the removal of the current ru ruling class, and the prime minister actually ended up resigning that same month. Then in March of 2020, at that point, there was $92 billion of foreign debt which was equivalent to nearly 170% of the GDP, and they defaulted on that debt. So similar to what we talked about in Sri Lanka. In April of 2020, they began talks with the IMF to see if there was ways to get loans. But just like in Sri Lanka, there was also problems there that they couldn't overcome. That deal was never made. And here we are three years later, nearly three years later, with still no solid deal having been made with the IMF. In August of 2020 came that infamous explosion. We've all seen the videos, which are epic, of uh, that port warehouse exploding. And the massive blast that that created, it killed over 200 people, damaged the port. And what I thought was really interesting about this was that this is just a perfect example of what happens during catabolic collapse. In that, uh, you know, because of corruption, because... There was a lack of funding because resources and energy and, frankly, attention was being placed on other things. This infrastructure, this warehouse was neglected. It was filled with this dangerous material. And the oversight ended up leading to this explosion. 
And it just goes to show what can happen with infrastructure, how things can fail, how things can be overlooked when a world is in crisis or a nation. So after this happens, suddenly there was just this whole saga of trying to find someone who would fit well as the prime minister. So this new prime minister they just added, he resigns after the blast. He was only in office for seven months. Then another guy who replaced him lasts one month. Then they reinstated the original guy who was in office before it all started. He had been prime minister three times before. And he ended up leaving nine months later because he says he can't form a new government. So, man, they are just going back and forth between all these prime ministers. And finally, they instate a billionaire who had already been prime minister twice. So this guy takes the role, and he is who continues to be the prime minister today. They just had elections last month, and he is remaining in power. In June of 2021, the World Bank says that Lebanon's economic collapse is likely to rank among the world's worst financial crises since the mid-19th century. So, the worst financial crisis in the last 200 years. This collapse has driven more than three-quarters of Lebanese population into poverty, and their currency has devalued by 90%. All the way up to this point, three years into the crisis at least three years in from when it really took off. No serious steps have been taken to fix the issue. The talks continue with IMF. They're trying to figure something out, but the government is still not stable enough. The IMF doesn't feel comfortable giving any funds, and the Lebanese people continue to suffer in ways similar to what we've talked about in regards to Sri Lanka and Venezuela. They are out of food, out of medicine, gas, power, but for them it's been going on for years now not months, like has been happening in Sri Lanka. Lebanon is a much smaller nation. It has 6 million people. They are a nation that has an extremely complex cultural and religious makeup. There are so many factors at play there, and, and admittedly, many that I don't understand regarding the intricacies of those religious relationships. But when you look at the core of what's happening, it goes back to that same pattern that the UN worries is going to continue to happen in other developing nations around the world. This week, we focused on three that have already suffered a collapse and are currently suffering their collapse. Next week, we'll talk about three more. And this isn't even taking into account other nations that may suffer the same fate in the coming months and years and who are already currently showing those early signs. Like you said, as we started this episode, Corey, we'll be doing a part two of this. Here we've talked about these recent examples or I would say, ongoing current examples of Sri Lanka, Venezuela, Lebanon. But there are other countries that it's important for us to discuss. If you listening are located in any of these countries or you are from any of these countries, we would love to hear from you additional insight that you might have. You know, I hear these heartbreaking recaps of what's taking place, and it's a tragedy. Hopefully for anyone listening... It inspires you to either seek ways to help when you see those around the world that are facing some of these challenges, or that it inspires you to take steps to try to prevent that wherever you live, or even if it's just a matter of preparing yourself. You know, every one of these episodes that we do as we get further and further into this collapse conversation, I realize personally that I don't want it to just be something that's like interesting or yeah, you know, sometimes I will watch a documentary just because it's kind of a form of entertainment to learn about something fascinating. But I want to make sure I'm in one way or another translating this into some form of action. And we we make sure to be 
descriptive and not prescriptive here on the podcast, but it would be especially fulfilling for Corey and I if we were to hear that, you know, action is taken by those of you listening in one way or another, you know, for the overall good, for something positive. 